What book have you guys been in for a while now? Romans. Two weeks left in Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 today, and then Romans chapter 15 next week, and then we'll move on after that. I want to talk to you today about one word primarily, and the word is transformation. Transformation. We love a good transformation story. This can be seen in our TV programs and the TV ratings. Some of the most popular shows on TV are transformation TV programs. Whether they're fashion makeovers, what not to wear, extreme home makeover, the biggest loser. We love to see people transformed. We love to see the person that comes in off the street and then comes out looking like a celebrity, right? Deep down inside, I think we want to see people be the best they can be. Because there's something in that that lets us know that maybe we can be the best that we can be. When you see somebody come in and they have an amazing turnaround transformation story, it gives us hope that maybe we too can achieve what we've seen them achieve. Unfortunately, there is an underside to transformation reality TV. This year, the New York Times did a feature piece on The Biggest Loser in May of this year. Everybody familiar with The Biggest Loser? Sounds not doesn't sound like a show anybody would want to go on called The Biggest Loser. Like if you win The Biggest Loser, do you really win anything? But it is a weight loss competition show. The people on the show work out for like seven hours a day. They control their diets. They have personal trainers. And their goal is to lose the most amount of weight of anybody on the show. It's hugely popular on TV. The article begins, Danny Cahill stood slightly dazed, In a blizzard of confetti, as the audience screamed and his family ran on stage, he had won season eight of NBC's reality television show, The Biggest Loser. Shedding more weight than anyone ever had on the program, an astonishing 239 pounds in seven months. When he got on the scale for all to see that evening, he weighed just 191 pounds, down from 430 pounds. Dressed in a t-shirt and knee-length shorts, he was lean, athletic, and as handsome as a model. I've got my life back, he declared. I mean, I feel like a million bucks. But in the years since, I think he did win a million dollars, actually. More than 100 pounds have crept back onto his 5'11 frame, despite his best efforts. In fact, most of that season, 16 contestants have regained much, if not all, the weight they lost. Some are even heavier now. A team of... Physiologists and dietitians studied these contestants and found that their bodies were literally fighting them to gain back the weight that they had lost. In fact, their bodies did not want to keep the weight off. In fact, many of them had metabolisms that simply could not sustain their new exercise regimen. Danny Cahill's metabolism was burning 800 calories less every day than the median for men his age. The team of scientists concluded that biology was the single biggest factor for their success. More than willpower, more than regimen, more than diet. In some ways, this is kind of a depressing story, right? How many people just ended your diet, right? (laughs) In some ways, it's a depressing story. If you talk to the people on the show, sometimes this came as a relief because they realized it wasn't something wrong with their willpower. It wasn't something wrong with their mind. But I'll tell you what hit me when I read this story. This is how I feel in my spiritual life a lot of the time. You go through weeks and weeks, you do well, you read your Bible every day, you pray, you're making right decisions, and you feel like there's something inside of you that's just fighting you 
to go back to your old ways. There's something inside of you that wants the things that you used to do. It wants to be like who you used to be. And if spiritual life were like weight loss, maybe we'd conclude that it doesn't matter your willpower. It doesn't matter your regimen. It doesn't matter your new habits. Biology is what's most important. But the guarantee that we get in the passage that we're going to study today in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is that God, when you become a Christian, God changes your spiritual biology. God completely transforms who you are from the inside out. So that instead of fighting a losing battle, we are now fighting a winning spiritual battle if you are in Christ. What we find in this passage is that God changes our spiritual DNA. We are fighting a winning battle being transformed into the image and glory of Christ. Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You have to get the conditions right for transformation to actually happen in your life. In fact, one of the things that Paul is telling us in this passage is there's a lot of stuff that happens before transformation begins to take place. Notice there's a really important word in my Bible and on your sheet. It is the fifth word, and maybe in the NIV it's the first word. The word is therefore. What do we usually look for when we see the word therefore? Which direction should we look? Before. We need to look before. And it's not a coincidence that this passage, this this set of verses comes over 11 chapters into the book of Romans, right? It's almost as if that therefore means if you believe everything that's been set up until this point, this is what should happen, right? If you believe the argument in the first 11 chapters, if you believe all the stuff that Paul has said about gospel and sin and mercy and grace and the Holy Spirit, if you believe all of that, this is the way your life should look. This is a basic primer on what the Christian life should look like. And Paul's going to spend four chapters after this enumerating these things and how they play out in our lives. If you believe everything in the first 11 chapters, what should your life look like? Well, there are two payouts in this passage for what your life should look like if you really are trusting in Christ. If you believe in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace in Christ Jesus, there's two things that should start to appear in your life. Number one, transformation into the glory of Jesus Christ. Absolute life transformation is the first thing that should be taking place if you believe what Paul has said. The second thing is you should have a knowledge of God's will, or you should know what God wants for you, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You should know that. Now, these are two really, really pertinent questions. Right, if we were to survey all kinds of human condition type questions, what do you want in your life? What do you want out of religion? Why do you come to church? These two would be close to the top of the list. How many times have we asked ourselves or heard other people ask, well, what I really, really want is to get rid of a nagging sin that's been with me forever. Or I know I shouldn't do this, but I keep making a string of bad choices. 
Or if I could only get my act together, then my life would be much happier and I'd be much more fulfilled. Or I feel like I've let down God and I'm trying to make it up to him. On the other hand, how many of us have asked ourselves if I could only know what God wanted me to do? If I could only know what God wanted in this situation. A lot of times we're ready to do whatever he wants us to do. We just don't know what it is. Or we say, I've got a big decision coming up. I want to honor God. If he would just tell me what he wants me to do. What Paul's saying in this passage is, if you have put your trust in Christ, two things that will be readily apparent to you will be transformation and the knowledge of the will of God. So I want to spend our time today talking, discussing, reading about what it will look like for these things to start bearing fruit in our lives. In chemistry, you have what's called catalysts, right? These have crept into pop culture. We probably all know what catalysts are, even though I did not do very well in chemistry in high school, and maybe some of you guys didn't as well. I know what a catalyst is. A catalyst is a certain kind of element that if you put it into a chemical reaction, it speeds everything up. Right, if you have two substances, they're sitting there, nothing is happening, you can throw in the right catalyst and all of a sudden a drastic reaction takes place. Right? It's like how many of us built those volcanoes when we were in elementary school, right? By themselves, uh, baking soda and vinegar are perfectly normal, doing nothing, just sitting there. And then when you put them together, eruption happens. This is how the Christian life works. There are chemicals sitting together. There's no reaction happening. And there is a catalyst that begins to spark the reaction. And that is total and complete surrender to Jesus Christ. One of the mistakes that we often make is that we expect Christian life transformation to happen before we've actually surrendered to Christ. One of the things that we do as Christians, on, even if we have surrendered, is we expect other people to act like Christians when they haven't put their trust in Christ. And one of the ways that Cliff Sanders says this is we really want the world to behave instead of wanting the world to be holy. And when we impose behavior restrictions on people, it's like trying to make a reaction happen without the catalyst. The catalyst for growth, Christian growth, is total and complete surrender. Don't expect to see transformation in your life. Don't expect to know the will of God in your life unless you have totally and completely surrendered to Him. Everything that's going to follow in the book of Romans is based on this. This is the difference between gospel and behavior modification. Right? Gospel is, I'm loved and accepted by God. Therefore, I do the things that He wants me to do because now I want to do them as opposed to behavior transformation. That is, I do the things I think God wants so that eventually God will like me and accept me. Right? That's a radical difference between those two things. We obey God. We do the things that God wants because we have been loved and accepted by God. And the amazing thing about this passage is we do those things because we will begin to want to do them. That's the goal. Perhaps it would be helpful if we looked back at Romans chapter 11 to get a little bit of a runway into Romans chapter 12. Look with me, if you would, if you got a Bible open. Look with me in Romans chapter 11. We're building from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 11, verse 36, one continuous argument. Right? This is the longest argument in the New Testament. From Romans 1, 18, through Romans eleven thirty six. Paul is making one continuous argument out what it means to put your trust in Christ. And he ends... This way, after all he said, look at verse, chapter 11, verse 33. He says this. 
Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That'd be a good ending for the book. That would be just fine if he ended right there. But he decided to attach a little bit of a manual to the end to tell us how to build on that. From him and through him and to him are all things. It doesn't seem like anything but the logical conclusion after this section that we should present our entire lives to him. Imagine with me, the mindset of the person who is not surrendering to Christ is basically saying, although they don't believe this, they're basically saying everything in the universe is for God. He created it all. He is working in it all. He is bringing all things together. He sent his son to make a purchase of sinners, and he is drawing all things to himself, but I know how to live my life the best way. I really know better than God. That's what we're saying, even though we wouldn't say that, when we resist surrendering our life totally to God. So for Paul, who believes it, he says, from him, through him, to him, all things, all glory forever. Then he says in chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, does anybody have, I'm reading the ESV, does anybody have a different translation of the end of verse 1 where it doesn't say your spiritual act of worship? Act of service? Anybody else? Yes, so this term is kind of a tricky one. Some of you guys probably have a footnote. I have a footnote in my Bible. It says, your rational service. This word in Greek is where we get the word rational. And so one of the things that this is implying is this is something that is totally fitting. Like if you, if you get 1 through 11, then this is your rational reasonable, spiritual act of service. There's nothing else that really makes sense for you to do if all this is true than to give your life totally over to God. So what does that look like? It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's take a moment to talk for a second about Old Testament sacrifices. This is the word that Paul is using. Offer is a sacrificial word. It's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's used 350 times in the Old Testament. Offer a sacrifice to the Lord. What, why do we offer sacrifices in the Old Testament to God? What's the purpose of sacrifices? Yeah, for the forgiveness of sins. So what is an Old Testament sacrifice? Blood. blood. Without blood, it's impossible to forgive sins. What do you do in an Old Testament sacrifice? You kill an animal. You place it on the altar. There's all kinds of rules and regulations for how you're supposed to do this, how you're supposed to prepare the animal, where you're supposed to put the blood, how much blood you put where, what kind of meat. It's a meticulous process. You take an animal, and the animal takes the punishment through its death and through the shedding of its blood for us. So Paul is saying Christ is the sacrifice for us, and the result is that we offer ourselves now as living sacrifices. 
Now, this is a paradox, right? A living sacrifice. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? You can't sacrifice anything that's living. Every sacrifice that these people have ever known has been a dead animal. Now he's saying, you, you and I need to be living sacrifices. In fact, the word sacrifice means killing. So what he's saying here is you need to offer yourself as a living killing. Offer yourself as a living killing. What does it mean for your sacrifice to be living? Well, it means that you have to do this every day, right? You have to do this every day. You know the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps getting up off the altar. It doesn't want to be sacrificed, So he says, you need to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You got to get up on that altar every day. You have to make the choice to submit to God every day. That's the living part is this is something that takes place over and over and over again. You offering yourself completely to God. It's also a killing. There's a death that's involved. There's a forfeiture that takes place when we offer ourselves as sacrifices to God. In fact, I think this is the number one resistance to the gospel in America today. Maybe in other parts of the world too, but definitely in America. As Americans, we may have doubts about the historical accuracy of the Bible. We may have doubts about Jesus and what he said and did. But underneath all of it, our number one resistance to the gospel is that we don't want anybody or anything to tell us that we don't have a right to live the way we want to live. That's the number one resistance to the gospel is we don't want anybody telling us that we don't have a right to do whatever we want. And what this passage is saying is you don't have a right to do anything that you want. There's a death that's involved. There's a death of our dreams for ourselves. There's a death of our will against God. There's a death of what we want versus what God wants. If we want to be a true living sacrifice. The Bible says over and over, die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross. There's a death that takes place in us of our right to control our own lives. So what does it mean to surrender? It means that every day we present our bodies, all of our time, all of our energy, all of our talents, all of our resources, and we say, God, you get to use these how you want to use them, not how I want to use them. That's what total surrender looks like, is God, you get everything. Not just part of it, you get everything. This is the rational response. How many of you have come across a book, it's a little pamphlet, a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home? Anybody come across? Thank you. So there's this little story, and the author writes a story, says, one day Jesus decided to come over to my house. And so I open the door and I show Jesus around and we go through the kitchen and I say, hey, this is where I make food. I will feed you in here. You can have whatever you like. We go into the living room. We say, this is where we relax and this is your place. Kick your feet up, make yourself at home. This is the bedroom where we sleep. We know we find our rest in you. You give this whole house tour and there's this one closet. And Jesus says, what's in the closet? And the person says, no, 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 no. You don't want to go in there. It's messy, it's dirty, and I've locked it, and I I threw away the key. 
And Jesus says, no, I want to go in there. And, and he say, no, no, you can be anywhere else in the house, but you can't go in that closet. That's where all the junk is. There's nothing in there that you would like anyway. And Jesus says, well, unless you let me in that closet, then I cannot stay at your house. And the person lets him in the closet and he cleans it out and he makes it new and he makes it nice and he restores everything to the way that it should have been. And it's a great little parable of what we do a lot of the time with Jesus. For us, a lot of times, total surrender looks like 90% surrender. God, you can have my plans. You can have my goals. You can have my speech when I'm with Christian people. You can have the things that I want to do on Sundays and Wednesday nights, but you can't have my finances or you can't have my career. You can have everything else, but you can't have my hobbies or you can't have me when I'm with my friends that weren't, that are not Christians that I used to hang around with. You can't have me then, but you can have me the rest of the time. Or sometimes the hardest thing for us is God, you can have access to the deepest, darkest pieces of my past or of my shame or of the things that I don't feel like I'm good enough for. What this passage is saying is when we submit to Christ, we don't have rights to hold anything back. If God wants to take your career and do something different with it, you may struggle for a little bit, but if God wants to do something with your career, then you need to submit to that. If God wants to do something with your finances, we need to submit to that. If God wants to do something with our minds, transform them, we need to submit to that. Total, total submission to Christ. Climb up on the altar every day and present everything to God. Now, this sounds pretty difficult, right? I mean, this has kind of been a downer lesson so far. You're like, man, how much did we pay to hear this, you know? You have to submit everything to Christ. Christ wants it all. Maybe this is where Christ gets the charge sometimes of being a megalomaniac. He wants control over everything. But the promise of this passage is not just that God wants everything and that you're going to fight for the rest of your life like the biggest loser to try and do something that is unnatural to you, something that your body is going to reject, something your spirit is going to rail against for the entire time that you're a Christian. No, the promise of the Bible is if you begin to submit everything to him, over time your mind and your heart will transform to a place where you want to give everything to him. And in fact, it's even more than that. It says your mind and your heart will begin to transform to a place where what God wants to do, you want to do. But you got to submit first. If you will submit, there's a transformation that will take place that now, instead of it being a begrudged angry submission where you don't want to submit to God, but you feel like you have to. Instead, what the Bible says is submitting to God and surrendering to him will become the most joyful thing that you do. Instead, actually the natural thing, the most, the most joyful inclination of your heart and your mind will be to do the will of God. Who wouldn't want to be there? Who wouldn't want to be there? Where instead of struggling to do the will of God, you're struggling not to do the will of God. That's the transformation that's promised in this passage. So we submit, we submit everything in the hope that transformation will begin to take place. He says in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word transformation is really interesting. 
It's the word we use for metamorphosis, and it's used four times in the Bible. Two times, this word is used to talk about the transfiguration. What happened at the transfiguration? In the Gospels, what happens? Jesus is the one being transformed, right? He, he splits his skin open. He, he shows the glory that he's going to have in heaven. And who's with him? Moses and Elijah, the two greatest guys in the Old Testament. Go up on a mountain. They start to radiate glory. The disciples don't know what to do. You remember what Peter says? Peter says, well, do you want me to put some tents up or something so we can stay here together? And Jesus is like, Jesus totally ignores him. He says, he and Elijah and Moses were talking about his upcoming death together. And they come back down the mountain, and Jesus tells them one day in glory they will all be that way. They will all be like he was when he was transfigured. That's the same word that's used here. Two times in the Bible, the word metamorphosis means Jesus shows the glory that he will have when he is in heaven. The third time that this word is used is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 18. I want to read this passage to you. Since we have, this is Paul, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that Israel might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, in this story, the backdrop of this story is when Moses is going up on Mount Sinai to meet with God and to get the law. When he came back down, his face, because he was talking to God and because he was seeing the law, his face was radiating so much that the Israelites made him put a veil over his face because it was blinding to them. They couldn't come that close to somebody who had been that close to God. Because Moses had spent that kind of intense time with God, they made him put a veil over his face because it was too much for them to be even that close to the presence of God. So he puts his, the veil over his face, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, this is everybody who's a Christian, we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. Here's our word. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Glory. Being transformed means that you are being made heaven ready. You are heaven ready. What does it mean for you to be transformed into the image of Christ? It means that you are ready to live forever with Him. Have you thought about one of the major things that the Bible speaks about going to heaven or living in the new heaven and the new earth is that we will be face to face with Christ forever. That's one of the predominant things that the Bible talks about with heaven is you will get to be face to face with God forever. Now this is something that humans can't handle, right? When Moses was face to face with God, he came down and he had to shield his face because the people couldn't stand it, right? And the Old Testament says you can't see God because if you see God, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. 
You'll be overwhelmed. But now the veil has been lifted, right? Because we've put our trust in Christ, the veil has been lifted. Now we have been given access through the word and through our relationship with Christ to stand face to face with God forever. And the transformation, part of the transformation that takes place is we got to get ready to do that. We need to get ready for that. Part of the way that we get ready for that is to have a growing and vibrant relationship with Christ now. Now. I sometimes wonder, this is going to sound a little bit cynical, but this is what, sometimes this is what happens when you're in the ministry. I sometimes wonder, when I hear people talk about how excited they are about heaven, they talk about all the things that they're ready to do, all the people that they're ready to see, and I wonder, and, and I wonder maybe Jesus slips in there somewhere. It's like, yeah, we'll talk to Jesus eventually when we get to him, but we'll have a bunch of other people to see first. I kind of wonder, <laughs> when, you get, when you get to heaven, are you going to know which one Jesus is? Are you going to recognize him? Like, have you talked to him before? We got to get ready for that. We need to have a growing and vibrant relationship. So we get there, we are ready to behold our Savior's face forever. One of my favorite hymns is called, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. In the third verse, it says, I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. We need to get ready for that. Part of our transformation is we are transforming from one degree of glory to another. From our earthly existence to our heavenly existence. And part of what it means to live in heaven is to be holy and be prepared to be with Jesus forever. This is part of the transformation. There's another implication in this passage, though, that Paul is making in 2 Corinthians, and I think he's making here, and that is the impact that Moses' shining face had upon the Israelites, right? The people looked at Moses and they said, we know that this guy has been with God, right? It was blatantly obvious. How many people do you see that have glowing faces? Right? And glowing faces, not many. But one of the things the Israelites noticed was this is a person who's been with God. I want to ask you this question. Take about five minutes. We're going to talk about this at our tables. I want to ask you this question. What is the equivalent in your life to seeing somebody who has a glowing face? What does it mean for you to look at somebody or to observe somebody and say, I know that person has been with God? What does that look like in your life? What is something you can point to about yourself or about somebody else where you say, I know this person has spent time with God? Throw out a couple of things at your table over the next couple of minutes about what it means to have a glowing face today, and then we'll throw a couple of those out, and then we'll finish with knowing God's will here in a minute. Okay, what does it look like today? What does it look like for you or somebody that you know, maybe, to have a shining face? Who's the person you come across where you say, that person has been with God? Can anybody think of a quality like that or think of an experience like that? When you look in their eyes and see Jesus, 
When you see Jesus, absolutely. You could see it. You could see it. I mean, we're strangers, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's sometimes an intangible thing. There's an intangible unity that comes in knowing that somebody else has spent time with the Lord. This is what transformation looks like. There's an everyday demand on us to continue to be transformed into the image of Christ. And one of the things that, if we're going to get really practical about this, is sometimes we think, man, I haven't had a shining face in a long time. I don't know that anybody thinks that about me. And our instinct, our usual instinct, is to work on behavior. Well, what could I do? Well, I, need to, I need some people to see me giving money, or, you know, I need to, you know, I need to be humble, or I need somebody to watch me do something nice for somebody else. No, 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 no. The goal in Romans 12 is not the external action. It's the internal surrender. If you want to be transformed, if you want to be a person like Moses, whose face is radiating what God is doing in your life, you need to ask yourself, have I started to crawl off the altar? Are there pieces of my life that I'm not surrendering anymore? Because the key to transformation is not trying harder in your behavior. It's surrendering more to Christ. That's what really leads to transformation. The second thing that we have is not just transformation, and it's the same key in this passage. Surrender doesn't just lead to transformation. It leads to a knowledge of God's will. This is one of the most amazing things that God has provided for us in the Christian life, is that he's given us all these things, all these demands that there's no way in the world we could ever meet, so Christ meets them for us, and then because of what Christ did for us, we begin to actually fulfill the law because of our transformation. We begin to do the things that the law commanded, the law of love, love God with your whole heart, love your neighbor as yourself. These things start to pop up in us because we've surrendered to Christ. Our minds begin to change. This word, there's a play on words in verse 2. Conform and transform are opposites. Conform and transform. Do not conform. That means don't stay in the mold of the world. This is like a stamping machine that is just putting out the same widget over and over and over again. That's what the world does, is it stamps us into its mold and we conform to it. It says, don't conform to that anymore. Break the mold of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewal of your mind is a change for the positive. This is where we say we're not stuck with our biology. We're not stuck with our physiology. God has changed our spiritual DNA. I want to tell you guys a story. Maybe some of you have heard the story before, but it's, it is a total and complete transformation. And it's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. She's written a book called Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. She did an interview with Christianity Today. Get this title. My train wreck conversion story. Christianity Today. This is her. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. 
Those who profess the name commanded my pity and my wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing the opportunity to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than to deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. Over the years, Rosaria became friends with a Presbyterian pastor. And over a year or so, she began to read the Bible, and slowly God began to change her mind. She says this, Then one ordinary day I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken, that's the pastor, was there. Floyd, that's a person she met at the church, was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my world right. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately, of the solace of the Holy Spirit, I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family, one calls me wife and many call me mother. Rosaria Butterfield was an Ivy League feminist lesbian. She had been in a committed lesbian relationship for years. She was hostile to Christianity. She befriended a Presbyterian pastor, and over time, as she said, She surrendered it all. She came to Jesus. And now, she says, I rested in private peace and community. And today, in the shelter of a covenant family, one calls me wife and many call me mother. I have not forgotten the blood that Jesus surrendered for this life. And my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. Sometimes we limit what we think God can do. How could you take an atheist, lesbian professor at an Ivy League school who hates Christians and thinks it's all stupid, and one day, because of the love of a regular, everyday pastor and some friends she met in a community group, everything changes. One of the greatest blessings of God is that he promises that if we surrender to Christ, we will begin to see the world the way God sees the world. We have the opportunity to know God's will for us because as we submit to him, we are conformed to his will. Our mind begins to think his thoughts after him. We get to want things that are good and pleasing and perfect. And it turns out that the thing God wants for us is good and pleasing and perfect. And when we want to know God's will, All we have to do is surrender. And we trust that our mind will get in sync with his mind. We sync up with the cloud. And all of a sudden, we know what God wants for us because it's what we want for ourselves. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies every day as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, This is your reasonable spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we continue to follow you, as we continue to work things out with you, that we would continue to surrender to you. Lord, please bring to mind areas that we are not quick to surrender, areas that we want to hoard for ourselves. Lord, whatever the cause, we pray that you would give us the courage to completely and totally offer everything up to you. Lord, as we do that, we thank you for the relationship that forms. Lord, that when we walk with you and we trust in your son, Jesus, you transform our behavior, you transform our minds, you transform our hearts and our desires to want what you want. Lord, help us with that. Help us to do that. Help us to know when you're calling us to do something or what decision you'd like us to make or what person to reach out to. Lord, we thank you and we pray this week that we would be people with shining faces. Or the people would see us and they would know that we have spent time with you. And that would make them want to spend time with you as well. Lord, thank you for this class. Thank you for blessing them the way that you have. Lord, I pray that you'd be with Steve and Rhonda today. Comfort them and give them safe travel. In Jesus' name, amen.